0: You've heard of road rage and desk rage. I almost had microphone rage last week, but I think we've got to figure it figured out what the problem might be. So pray that it holds up. Uh, the The co- we all face conflict. Every one of us here. We see it on a personal level. We see it on a global level. I, the irony is our inability to deal with much of the conflict we have. So let's go global for a minute. We had World War I, the war to end all wars. Well, whoever termed it didn't. I trust he didn't live long enough to see the very next war within a generation, World War II. Of course, out of that war came the formation of the UN, the UN following the League of Nations. Back in '45, it was established with 50 nations signing a charter saying that we're going to resolve, we're going to deal peacefully with conflicts that we have, we're going to speak, we're going to gather these people together, and and we're going to discuss these things so we never go through another armed conflict again. Of course, since then, we've had about 168 armed conflicts following that, but we have proven our inability as a people to resolve conflict apart from God's grace. So when we drill it back down to our life here, I mean, all of you know I'm sure you have relationships that you are at least strained with or perhaps at odds with or perhaps the relationship has just tanked. And you know the pain associated with the conflict that you have in your relationships. Well, thankfully, Proverbs, Proverbs is a a wonderful book. Let me take off my jacket again. Sorry. This isn't a ploy, honest engine I'm about to go without this microphone. You're going to see how I'm going to handle my anger right now. <laughs> and I, I told you I was a sinner last week, so you're probably going to see it like in color. Okay, so, so when you look at the conflict in your life, Proverbs has wisdom for us. Here's the deal with Proverbs. You know, much of the scriptures teach us about what is right and what is moral, and things to do and things not to do. Proverbs affords us is a path of wisdom in the gray areas of life. It's speaking to us about how to handle things that we may not fully know. For example, in terms of conflict, should I confront the person or should I let the person go and just overlook the offense? What should I do with that? I mean, sometimes we don't know. It may be this way. It may be another way. What should we do? Well, Proverbs affords us kind of a path through the tangled web of conflict where it helps to guide us into peaceful relationships. So here's what we're going to do today. I want to look at conflict in your life from three angles. The first angle is going to be just the costs of it. I, I want to sober you to the reality of conflict being very expensive physically, relationally. It's going to have, it's going to have a cost spiritually. And then I want to look at the the causes of conflict. In other words, what gives birth to it so we can understand it rather than just reacting to it. And then ultimately, I want to challenge you, and I'm really going to challenge you to to, um, discern what conflict exists in your life, and then seek to resolve it. Move towards fixing it and bringing it Uh, bringing God's grace to bear on it. So so let's just look at the cost. I want to sober you to the reality that it's a serious matter. You and I, we all have conflict. If you exist, you have conflict. You you exist in relationships, and relationships have conflict. There's no way around it. It is inevitable that every one of us here is going to have a degree of conflict. The cost is, you know the cost, really. You know the hurt feelings when someone gossips about you. Or perhaps you know the sense of abandonment when someone betrays you. Or you get angry when you're ignored. I mean, you know when, when, when relationships go sideways, you get very defensive. I mean, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle. And Solomon spoke about this. Let me give you just some, some verses here. In chapter, um, in chapter 17, he says this. And I will we post these on the web for you by category, so you can listen, pay attention. You don't need to write down every reference. We'll make sure you have them. In seventeen one, here's what Solomon says. He says, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Think about what he's saying there. He's saying it's better for you to go with a hard piece of crusty bread without anything to dip it in than to have royal proportions of food if there's strife present. The anger takes away the joy. It's better to give up some physical necessities to have peace and contentment in a home. Or not just that, 21.9, he says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a contentious wife. Now, ladies, hang on. What, I could give you a proverb right away that would be, It is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house with an angry or a silent or just a brooding man. It's the same thing. He's saying, give up the four-bedroom colonial. Give me a shack. I just want peace. We want peace and we want contentment. That's what he's saying. That's the cost of strife. Something so beautiful as a lovely, nicely appointed home. I don't want it. It's not worth it to be dealing with the conflict that we have. Or how about this one in, in Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. He's saying here, once you get in a conflict with a brother and, and, or a sister, and it gets locked down, justification starts taking place, we start getting hardened in our positions, it's like storming a city with fortified walls. It's like trying to break down a castle with strong iron bars. You can't do it. It's not easy. In other words, the cost of conflict is great, and the resolution to it is really going to be challenging. Be careful. The costs are great. Now, you know this. You know this. But God goes so far as to say that he hates it. You know, in that great passage, you know, the seven deadly sins in chapter 6 of Proverbs, he says this. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. In other words, to sow those seeds of conflict, God hates it. It's an abomination to him. And the reason is is because it's very expensive. So let me just give you some examples. Right In terms of our marriages, when there's conflict that's unresolved within our marriage, that seething anger that just eats away like cancer in our relationships, finally bubbles over, families are broken up. I mean, just the average cost of litigation in a divorce can be between twenty dollars and $30,000. The, the, the tragedy that occurs within the families themselves, or, or not just even within a family, within a church. Do you realize that there are 20,000 church conflicts per year? Per year. That's significant conflicts that result in splits or major ruptures within the church? There is, there is 4 to $8 billion that is spent on litigation between Christians. It's incredible. Whatever happened to 1 Corinthians 6, isn't it better just to be wronged, he would say? 1,500 forced pastoral exits? I mean, the costs are great. Or workplace conflict. I quoted that last week. Listen to this number, though. This number is that 85% of American workers say that they have conflict. And it takes up 2.8 hours per week of their time. So when you compute the financial cost in terms of hours, it's $359 billion. Unresolved conflict. It is expensive. What is the level of conflict that you have right now in your relationships? Are you underestimating the cost to you? I mean, when you look at your marriage... Is it kind of a cold war? Not Guns aren't firing, per se, but there is this seething distrust or anger in your friendships outside of marriage, or perhaps in the workplace, or in this church itself. Is there conflict within this body here that you just go the other way? You go another way up the aisle so you don't see someone... The costs are going to be great. You know, the costs are going to be on you first. You must remember that. There's going to be. It's, it's exhausting, conflict is. It's frustrating. It causes bitterness. It causes rancor. But not just the physical cost. Think about the relational cost that comes. Because when you're angry with somebody, it doesn't stay with that person. It bleeds over. It's like hitting your thumb with a hammer. I mean, it doesn't just hurt the thumb. It hurts the whole arm. I mean, it, it, it just spreads out. That's why when you have a terrible day at the office, you go home, you kick the dog. The dog runs from you. Not just that, or you struggle with your spouse, and you take it out on the kids. It used to be the case you you just it, it just spills over to things, or, or the spiritual cost. You know, James tells us that the same mouth can't produce both praises and curses. So I mean, when you're angry, it affects your spiritual worship. I mean, there is no way that you're going to be able to worship God. We talked about this last week. Worship God with a, with a heart full of bitterness and anger. It just won't happen. You will spiritually die. Not, not just that, but there's always a disproportionate cost to it. You know, If you cut somebody off on the road, the response and the rage that comes when they flip you off or they honk the horn or they tell you, it's always disproportionate to the traffic violation. Or when you say a word. And then you get three hours of cold silence or a rash of words from your spouse. It's always disproportionate. You must remember anger. It's like that old proverbial, the snakes in the can. You know, you used to have this little can, and it was always done as a joke. You'd open the can, and these snakes would pop out. And you're like, how'd they get all those snakes in that little can? But once they're out, they're out. And it always contained more power and punch than you could imagine it. So there's always a disproportionate nature. Now, the cost of conflict, I I really want to sober you. So you'd look at your your relationships right now and say, where is the conflict? Have I let it exist too long? Now, we want to be careful about engaging conflict. Solomon warns us in 1714. He says, the beginning of strife is like breaching a dam. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Now, I don't think he's saying don't I don't think he's saying ignore conflict. I don't think he's saying don't deal with it. It's going to be breaching a dam. You can imagine when you breach a dam, you can't start rebuilding it as the water is flowing through it. It's it's a terrible situation. You can't put it back together again. I think he's saying just count the cost. Just be mindful. When you engage in the resolution of conflict or you engage in strife, just be mindful there's a cost to it. Now, there's a cost to not dealing with it, which we'll talk to, but there is a cost to dealing with it. So where are you right now? What level of conflict do you have? Have you resolved it? Have you tried to resolve it? Have you just made peace with it because you don't want to deal with it? And how is it eating away at your soul right now? Well, I think that's that's part of the warning, is the cost of conflict is significant, and I want to sober you to that. But if it's so expensive, I think if you're like me, you're thinking, well, why do we always find so much of it? I mean, if we understand the cause of conflict, why do we find ourselves descending in it so quickly and so frequently and so deeply? Well, I want to talk about these causes of conflict. What in your relationship, according to Solomon in Proverbs, what in your relationship engenders and builds up conflict, causes it to kind of flame up a bit? There's a lot of things we do. Uh, Gossip, for example. When we talk about one another, when we share those delicate morsels that we know about somebody with somebody else, Oh, we may do it under the guise of prayer and all that sort of stuff. But when we share those morsels, we're so in greater conflict. You know, our, our image of the person with whom you're speaking all of a sudden begins to drop. And Solomon warns us, he says in 1628, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. It does, because it just sticks, it sticks a wedge in my opinion of somebody, somebody when I hear something negative. Or not just gossip but but also greed. A greedy man stirs up strife. A guy that's greedy or a woman that's greedy is always striving to get what they want and they're going to naturally run over people to get what they want to climb in the ladder. You know, it's just a game you play in the corporate world, right? You just got to hey, you got to let that thing that they did well kind of slip. You can introduce what they didn't do well and then boom, you get ahead of them on the ladder. Greed stirs up strife and conflict, but not just greed, but pride does. Pride, i got to know everything about everything, and i got to make sure that you know I know about everything. And it just runs roughshod over people, and it begins to raise strife and conflict and bitterness. Or not just, but impatience, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. You know that sense that I've got to be, i got to reveal to you that I'm impatient with the time you're taking to do what I ask you to do. As if you could do it perfectly every single time and 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 it's just i'm going to and it, it what it engenders is this division and strife and conflict so these are kind of the outward symptoms of what causes conflict but i don't think those really do it i think those are symptoms to a greater problem i think the real issue is with us those are symptoms it wasn't this way you know you know when god created the male and the female it wasn't this way God made us human to enjoy him. In Genesis 126, God says, let us, note the plurality there, let us make man in our image. So God has created the human to enjoy him. And he's created the human to enjoy the triune God. In other words, God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit had perfect fellowship. One author said it was the only non-dysfunctional family, the only one. The triune God creates us to enjoy Him, that we would enjoy the relationship with Him. A relationship marked by peace and trust and and tranquility, honesty, love, devotion. Those things would exist in our relationship with God. That's why He created us. But it wasn't just for us to relate to God. It was also us to relate to one another. In Genesis 2.18, He says, It's not good that the man is alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, I don't think he's saying that he created man with this this need to be needed, but I think it's speaking about his nature. He created the male and the female to enjoy community with one another. It's good that he's not alone. In other words, he creates the man and the woman to mirror in their relationship to mirror the relationship with God. In other words, the the dynamic within the Trinity, that love, that trust, that obedience, that happiness, that security, that safety, that was to be mirrored in the husband and the wife and the bigger community of faith, that those same characteristics are to be on display for the world that, in fact, are mirrored in the Trinity. So you see in Genesis 2.25 where it says they were naked and they were unashamed. What does it mean? Well, they were naked, that they were transparent. It isn't just a physical issue. They were transparent with one another. Think of all the secretive stuff that you hide between your ears. None of that was there. It was, there was no secrets. There was a transparency, and they weren't ashamed about it. They were totally open with one another. They knew one another intimately, thoroughly, completely. And and there was was no conflict. I mean, can you imagine? That's what the relationships will be like in heaven. Think about it. The relationships in heaven, there's no rancer. There's no arguing. There's no competition. There's no bitterness. There's no deceit. There's no half-truths. There's none of that. There's no condescension. There's no short-tempered. That's what we have. That's what we had. And that's what we have. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 20. Father, may they be one as we are one. That's the unity. That's the peacefulness that we had. So what happened? Well, we know what the story goes. You've read it. I've told you in Genesis 3, the man and the woman. I mean, what an honorable position to be made vice regents of all of God's creation. And they're the ones that are going to begin stewarding God's world. What an honor. And they want more. They don't want to be under God's reign. They don't want to simply enjoy fellowship with God. They want to call the shots. It's just like you and I right now. It's mirrored in every one of us because we have followed them. We want to do what we want to do, and we want to do it when we want to do it. And that caused a rupture. That was the first conflict. That brought about a lack of peace, alienation. There's conflict now between the creature and the creator. And that conflict, that twisting of creation, has brought about this brokenness from God. And and you can well imagine, when the relationship between the creature is now at odds with the creator, so will the relationship between the creatures now go awry. It's like a conductor of a symphony going off page, and the 50 different instruments, they're not going to hang together. They're going to go in all their different directions. In other words, there's going to be horizontal conflict between husband and wife and between children and parents, and you all have more than enough evidence to prove that. But how did sin do that? I mean, how did sin cause such rupture? Well, think about it. In, in Genesis 2.25, they were naked and unashamed. And then in chapter 3, what do they do after sin enters the scene? Well, they of covering themselves, Right? So they're embarrassed over their nakedness. They cover themselves, and they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They're ashamed about who they are. And so they hide themselves from God. They hide themselves from each other. They attack one another, and on the story goes. Do you see what happens? This this nakedness that now we've discovered is sinful, we are ashamed. And so we do try to hide ourselves. What am I saying? You know. I mean, you do. You try so hard, and I try so hard to make everybody think it's okay. We got it together. Everything's working for us. We don't want to let anybody know where we're broken. We don't want to let people know what scares us. We don't want to let people know what we think about them. We don't want to let people know these things. And so we cover. And, and this desire to cover the shame of our own brokenness that we can't deal with, th- this, this covering moves me to deceive, to lie, to kind of give half the story to give false compliments that you may like me, it leads us to doing all kinds of sins because I'm trying to cover my actual brokenness. We don't want to let people know that, that we don't have it all together. We want to, we clean our, even we do it the way we dress and we clean ourselves up, want to look a certain way. I mean, look at Facebook. I, I don't mind Facebook, but look at it. I mean, you don't see the whole story from Facebook. You see pictures of people, and if I just took all their pictures, I would think they got the best life in the world. They don't have any problem. Now, I'm not asking you to start posting just ugly pictures of yourself. <laughs> I don't want to have to go through that. But I, you, you, the, the reality of it is that's not the forum to display my brokenness to everybody. But what I'm saying is that's the covering that we go through. And this is what leads us into, the I think, the conflict that we have because we're trying to cover. We can't be honest with one another. And I think most of you know that the default position for most of us when we encounter conflict, the cause of it is we tend to outsource the problem. It's them, their actions and their attitudes. We don't see it as a product of my problem with God. We see it more as their issue, what they've done or what they haven't done. And we don't see it the fact that because I'm out of sync with God, Because I've got to cover myself, it leads me to self-protection and self-promotion and self-indulgence and all these self-sins, which, of course, give birth to conflict. So I want you to see that this is a mark of the Christian, and I want you to see if it's in your life. You know, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. So let me give you a test. This is one test I give. How easy is it for you to expose your sin versus excuse your sin. So many of us when we're in conflict, we tend to find them at fault, but we find ourselves justified for what we've done. The Christian is marked by having an ability to expose his sin and to repent from it and seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. That's the mark of the Christian, that when he's in a conflict, he's not defending himself immediately, but he's looking at himself saying, no, I I am broken and I've acted shamefully because I'm self-centered. I mean, what would this do to conflict resolution? No posturing, no defensiveness, no excuse making, no, just, you know what, I was a blockhead. I felt like you hurt me and I wanted to hurt you. And it was out of my own insecurity that I did that. See, the Christian, we know the Christian can do this because he has the gospel. See, what the gospel does is the gospel proclaims that God has chosen to forgive us in Christ. The gospel has said, if God is for you, who can be against you? So why, do you ma- why does it matter? You know, how does it help you to hide yourself? If God is for you by faith in the gospel, then it shouldn't matter. Robert Murray McShane was a great Scottish Presbyterian in the uh, 19th century. and Here's what he wrote about this. He said, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm ashamed to go. He's using the language of Genesis. I feel as if uh, it would not do to go, as if it were making Christ the minister of my sin, to go straight from the swine trough to the best robe and a thousand other excuses. But I'm persuaded they're all lies direct from hell. He goes, the Apostle John argues the opposite way. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. The holy, sensitive, the holy sensitivity of the soul that shrinks from the touch of sin, the acute susceptibility of the conscience at the slightest shade of guilt, will of necessity draw the spiritual mind frequently to the blood of Jesus. And herein lies the secret of our heavenly walk. Acquaint yourself with it, my reader, as the most precious secret of your life He who loves in the habit of a prompt and minute acknowledgement of sin, with his eye reposing calmly, believingly upon the crucified Redeemer, soars in spirit where the eagle's pinion range not. In other words, run to Christ. Those of you who are believers in conflict, run to him. Confess your sins. Make repentance with the people with whom you have conflict. So the cost of sin is great. The cost of conflict is great it will slowly eat you for lunch the causes of sin are ultimately rooted in our broken relationship with god but the gospel for the christian gives us hope and delivers us from despair but there's more i think there's a challenge in here because if i've told you hey here's the cost and here's the cause what do we do how can we respond to it well here's the challenge that it gives us and i just want to give you about uh, about five principles to consider in the resolving of conflict. I'm going to challenge you that when you look at your life and you kind of assess the conflict that you have, what can you do about it? So I want to give you some thoughts to consider. Uh, number one would be to see conflict differently than you did before. Most of us run from conflict. with withdrawal or we tend to attack. I want to, I want to change your perspective on how we look at conflict. I, I want you to first see it as inevitable. You are dwelling with human beings. You're going to have conflict. The only way you can avoid conflict is if you go to a deserted island and go live by yourself. And there you'll have conflict ultimately with your own soul anyways. So, but any time you live with people, you're going to have conflict. There's a spate of books on marriage, and I've referenced one of them to you, but you know, the one author titled the book, What Did You Expect? In other words, really? You're having problems? You're having conflict? Or When Sinners Say I Do that's the way it goes. I mean, there is going to be conflict with us. You you have to know it's inevitable. I'm not being a fatalist here. I'm not being a Debbie Downer. I'm recognizing that the nature of man, while apart from the face of God, will have conflict with one another. That's the way it is. And for you not to know that, I think you set up an expectation that will disappoint you time and time again. And you'll put people under, or you'll put people with these expectations that they shouldn't act that way. Parents, again, when you're shocked at the behavior of your children, I'm not saying you don't deal with them, but when you're shocked at them lying to you or perhaps, you know, not being truthful or being deceitful. I mean, really? Shouldn't you know that? Don't we do the same thing as adults? We just do it more sophisticatedly, that's all. We do the same thing. Again, I don't accept that, but I do expect that. So, so, so see conflict differently. I would like you to see it as an opportunity, actually. I think God prepares us for heaven by resolving conflict. I, I think that God brings us from glory to glory through dealing with conflict well. I, I mean, this idea of conflict is a working out of our own salvation with fear and trembling. One sinner dealing with another sinner with the gospel. I think that's how he brings us to glory. I mean, God doesn't glory. He is not going to incrementally sanctify you as you float down the lazy river. It's going to be through the resolving of conflict. It's kind of, in a way, it's really not different than the old story of the silversmith. You know, So if you're going to purify silver, put it in a cauldron, you heat it up, and you increase the temperature and, of course, the dross, so the impurities of the silver raise to the top, the silversmith cleans out the dross, and then he heats up the fire a little bit more, which brings up impurities the lower temperature couldn't bring up. And he does this through a series of increased temperatures. And finally, he looks at the silver, and he sees himself, and he says, now it's pure. That's how God brings us from glory to glory to glory. When, when Carol and I have a conflict, It is a time where God exposes my own sin in the conflict that I don't want to see because I'm too proud and I'm not strong enough, and he brings it up for me to deal with. That's how it's dealt with, working out your own salvation. So I don't want you running from conflict. I want you running to it simply with the grace of God. I want you to recognize it's inevitable. We want to see it as part of God's perfect plan in our life. But secondly, uh, secondly, I would ask you to to try to ignore it first. Try to ignore it first. In other words, you know, in Proverbs nineteen eleven, it says that it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. There are some things that we can just overlook. Carol calls it words to the wind. Just let it go. I mean, it's not worth dealing with. Who, who knows why they said what they said or who knows why they did what they did, but just let it go. I mean, it, it, it's probably a good place to start. Just try to ignore it. If it can't, you can't, you've got to deal with it. I, I understand that, but just try to ignore it. Charles Spurgeon, in lecturing to his students, Charles Spurgeon was a great pastor in, in London in the 19th century, and he talked about, in his lectures to his students, so he is a pastor's college and he's training them. He says, I've got a, a blind eye and a deaf ear. And uh, he would reference his blind eye and deaf ear in, in regard to the criticisms that he had faced and these other ministers would face. This doesn't just apply to ministers. This applies to you as well. But people are going to say things. People are going to say things that are mean. They're going to say things that are wrong. They're going to imply things about you. They're going to misunderstand you. And there's going to be all kinds of things. Just give them a blind eye. Give them a deaf ear. Just don't listen to it. And in fact, here's what he said. He said... Um, He said, to opinions and remarks about yourself, turn, as a general rule, the blind eye and the deaf ear. In the case of false reports against yourself, for the most part, use the deaf ear. He goes, I have one blind eye and one deaf ear, and they're the best eye and the best ear that I have. Just don't listen to it. Just try to ignore it. I think there's value. So first, see conflict differently. And then secondly, that you would just try to ignore it. And, And then thirdly, I would say that you would Ask God for a greater awareness of yourself. Ask God for a greater awareness of your own sin, that you really ask him. I'm not saying this to be, you know, just cutesy. I mean, you're going to ask him, God, show me where I might be at fault. Listen Listen to what Solomon says. He says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. Do you realize that when you're in a conflict, the tendency is that you will justify your behavior and you will find fault with the person bringing the conflict? And so you belittle them. You make fun of them. You move in self-righteousness. You move in pride and you consider him the village idiot. He's the one that's got the problem, not me. And you begin to demonize him. You begin to look at that issue that they brought and you begin to paint their whole person with it, really. You, you, you work in caricature is what you do. You know, a caricature is, is high. We see political cartoonists, right? So they have a president. Perhaps the president has large ears. So they'll make them huge ears. So they have a large nose. Make it a huge nose. And this is, this is kind of a caricature. You take one part of a person, and usually it's a negative part. And, and you take it and you exaggerate it so it almost distorts the reality of the person. And so when you are in a conflict, you tend to belittle. You tend to find the fault with them, and then you make that a bigger issue than it is. And you don't even see what you are doing or what part you may be playing. And Proverbs addressed this. He says this, fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. What's he saying? Fools mock at the guilt offering. The fool is the one who can't see his own sin, He's mocking this guy who's making a guilt offering to God because he knows he's a sinner. And he's saying, yeah, I am glad I'm, i don't have to give an offering. It wasn't my fault. It's all his issue. Fools mock at guilt offerings. In other words, you're a fool when you don't start with yourself and you don't see the sin that you bring to the conflict. Ask God. Psalm 139, he says this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to reveal your sin to you. So, so ask him a greater awareness of yourself. But then I would also say resist talking about it. Resist talking. Boy, I tell you, we sow major seeds of discord. In Proverbs 17, 9, he says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. You know, we, when you begin, here's what we do. We're hurt in a conflict, and so what moves us to repeat the story? Well, we want to get payback. You know, if, if they hurt me, and if I can tell that story to three or four other people, I'll get it back. I'll, I'll, get my, I'll exact a penalty on that person by bringing them down to all these friends. But he says love covers an offense. The, the word for cover means to be silent. You don't speak about it. When your mind goes there, you repent of your sin and you just clamp it. You don't speak about it. You don't share it. Not even one time. Can you imagine the temperature decreasing and the conflicts in your life if you didn't spread it and repeat it and tell tales over and over? It it exacerbates your own heart. When you go over the story, don't you feel more justified to take the position that you did? You know, and and, and, I mean, I find myself, you know, you're almost on your toes when you're telling the story again when there's a real conflict because how justified you are. So resist speaking about it to anybody, and it kind of brings the fires down quite a bit. And then the last thing, the most important thing, and, of course, the hardest thing, is that you would triumph over this evil with good. Now, this is going to be a mind teaser for you. It, It just is. In 25, 21, but there's hope. So so let me set you up for how difficult this will be, and then let me show you how great it will be. 25-21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That is a tough word. The best revenge in conflict is to love them. Here's the tendency you're going to have. You want justice. The problem is your justice is for them to hurt like you're hurting. And so you bring the offended, brings the same hate that the offender brought to him. And this only shapes you in the image of hate. You become that which you criticize when you return the favor. And, and what Solomon is encouraging us and Paul in, in Romans chapter 12 or 14 is what he's encouraging us is no, bring love to the hate. In other words, return good to the evil that's been given to you. Resolve the conflict by offering forgiveness, exercising love, speaking to the person, going after them, renewing the friendship, not backing away in self-defense, but moving forward, trusting the grace of the gospel. Now, this is incredibly clear, I think, when you look at Jesus Christ. He brought love to us who hated him. He did good to those who intended evil. Jesus Christ in the gospel demonstrates this principle to perfection, and He doesn't just reveal it in a perfect way, but He accomplishes our our forgiveness. So, what brings justice? Not heaping back on them what they gave on you, but by bringing love, forgiveness, mercy to them, being willing to get back in a relationship with them. Now, you ask, okay, I get that. So, so you got people lined up you're angry with them, you're in conflict with them, I'm going to start just doing kindness to them. In other words, if you return hate, you justify their actions is what you do. If you bring love, you'll exasperate them because they won't know what to do with it. You're going to, you're going to befuddle them through your kindness and through your mercy. You say, but how do I do this? Well, of course, secular, this is where psychology of the world won't help you. Now, uh, psychology does a lot of good things. Secular psychology does explain things and perhaps can explain why you feel the way you feel. Just like the weatherman can explain the weather. Or um, a doctor can explain the process of birth. But they can't do it. The weatherman can't change the weather. The secular psychologist can't give you the power to do what I'm telling you to do. In fact, Becky Pepper. she's an author. I quoted her last week. She's written a bunch on evangelism. She's also written a bunch on um, uh, evangelism and the gospel. She's taking a class at Harvard, okay, and this class is called, it's a psychodynamic psychology. And in this, they're having a case study about this psychologist who's explaining how a therapist helped kind of uncover this hidden anger that a patient had with, with his mother, And so, and and they're explaining, you know, this is the problem, and here's where the anger came from. and, and, And so they explained it, and great, okay, now I understand it. So she raises her hand in the class, and here's what she asks. She says, let's say the patient returned a few weeks later and said, I'd like to get beyond my anger. I'd like to be able to love her and forgive her. How do I do that? How does the psychodynamic psychotherapy help a person with a request like that? It's a good question. It's a fair question. It's a bold question in Harvard. She says, there was silence. The professor answered, I think the therapist would say, lots of luck. In other words, you've just hit the cliff. They can explain why you may have anger, but they can't help you deal with it. This is where the gospel comes in. The gospel is like yeast and it's put in your soul, and it begins to move and change you from glory to glory. It's believing in the gospel enables us to begin to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus isn't just giving us an example to follow. He's given us his spirit through the resurrection so that we might begin to act and walk as he does. It gets in us, and it begins to change us. We're convicted of sin. We're overwhelmed with the gospel. That We meditate on Christ, we think about it, and then we're able to move toward our enemy with love. Listen to what John Piper wrote about this. He says, Most of our anger or conflict towards others is rooted in an inability to be profoundly amazed at Christ's love for us in our sin. If you're struggling with bitterness, then it may be that the Lord is letting the very sin that is flowing from your anger to be the means by which you can come to see him more clearly. The more profoundly amazed you are over the cross of Christ for your sins, the more you will find pleasure to forego grievances and grudges. The solution is not to fix the other person. The solution is to gain a heart that is overflowingly grateful for grace from Christ and that spills over with grace towards others. That's it for the Christian here. How firmly have you grasped the gospel? And what I mean by that is the wrath of God and the nature of your sin and the work of Christ. How firmly do you grasp it? You know, Luke 7, when the woman who was a prostitute, used by men all over her life, came to Jesus and wept on his feet, and then he forgives her and she leaves happy. And what does Jesus say to Simon when he accuses him of forgiving her? He says, you know, to whom much is, or um, he says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. You can love much when you know you've been forgiven much. If you don't understand the depth of your own deliverance, you don't have a chance to walk in love towards those who are your enemies. For the non-Christian here, I want to challenge you. How can you overcome your evil? How can you resolve your conflict? You're going to do it on a quid pro quo basis. You're only going to give as much as you're, as you're trying to get. Isaiah in 57 says that for the wicked, for those apart from me, there will be no peace. There'll be no resolution of conflict. I would encourage you, if you have questions for the non-Christian to come forward after the service, but for the Christian here, have you grasped the gospel? Well, let's take a few minutes right now, and, um, and let's pray toward that end. We only have a few minutes, but uh, I would like to begin for us and then ask you, and we want to pray briefly for the time and loudly so we can join with you, and, uh, but ask God for grace as we try to respond to these words. Father, would you give uh, grace to us now even as we appeal to you in the name of Christ. Father, uh, help our eyes be opened uh, to the nature of the conflict, to the nature of our brokenness, but also to the glory of Christ. Thank you.